Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Michael Coyne of the Massachusetts School of Law. Thank you very much. And Thanks for coming in. We always look forward to your visit. I always enjoy being here. Spending some time with you guys. It's a fun night. Lots to cover, so let's get right underway. And the big thing, of course, is the impeachment proceeding. We're going to keep it non-political and strictly legal. Because I'm, I'm curious to know the process. So there are legal aspects and there are political ones. What are the, the process elements that we need to know about? Well, the process as we go forward now will ultimately be the House will have to vote on a resolution as to whether to impeach the president. As most people know, there are only two other presidents who were actually impeached over the course of our existence, uh, Andrew Jackson and Bill Clinton. President Nixon resigned under the threat of impeachment, but he wasn't actually impeached. So that would be the next step in the process. And I I think based on the evidence that they've assembled so far and the uh, number of House members that support it, that is likely going to take place. There's been some real question as to whether it will take place before the first of the year or push it into the new year, and that's uh, really a question of when the House chooses to act uh, at this point and uh, have the assembling of the information. There's now talk. The big question now is what will that process in the House actually look like on the vote for impeachment and on the hearings on impeachment? Will it be... Um, not just a public process with respect to that trial, uh, but uh, should it be held in the evenings and the like so that more people will be able to see the evidence uh, and judge for themselves because it's such a polarizing issue. The question is no one's going to believe anyone's interpretation of the evidence in the testimony, uh, or at least a significant segment on, on the right and the left won't. So perhaps the, the most important thing we can do for the public is to educate them about the evidence that would be used to have a House vote on impeachment and then ultimately the trial in the Senate. And so that's they'll fight about what that process will look like with respect to this public uh, uh, hearing uh, of an assembling of evidence that's now taking place in the House. And once we're, once we're past that process, assuming that the House does vote to impeach the president, then the actual trial of that would take place in the Senate with the senators uh, being the jurors who would have to make a determination as to whether the president should be removed or not from office. As a dean of Mass School of Law, do you involve this this process in your teaching, in your class? Yeah, well, you use I use a lot of the examples from the evidence that's assembled in the testimony. You know, we had the big thing last month was, what is the whistleblower stuff all hearsay? Uh, and if it's all hearsay, is hearsay inadmissible? And, and hearsay is a significant pop, uh, percentage of the study in the evidence course in law school. It's actually a significant part of practicing law if you're going to be in and out of courtrooms and the like. And it's oftentimes a frequently misunderstood 
and uh, difficult concept for both lawyers and judges and law students especially to to grasp and really handle. So it's it's not something easy that oftentimes we hear it bandied about. Uh, but the fact is you can use some of that information about the arguments, both pro and con, for various pieces of evidence uh, when teaching evidence. That's one of the courses I teach this semester. Another uh, issue or issues that come out of it that you can use as well is obviously in both constitutional law classes and also I have a course in uh, that deals with federal courts and how cases find their way through there. And uh, even today, we had the latest case come up with respect to President Trump's tax returns. And now the appeals court has said that he has to uh, produce those. Uh, the likelihood is that that situation ultimately will be uh, at least viewed and perhaps decided by the Supreme Court of the United States. So there are ways in which you can use the uh, what's happening to help educate your students about the process and the issues involved. So it's actually quite beneficial to be able to look at that. But we use look at a lot of the issues that you and I have discussed over the, the many months like that. The vaping cases are very good cases to show process about injunctions and what the rules are and the standards. So I, I like to use contemporary issues that the students are aware of to, to bring those things we're studying home. I think a lot of people do. It makes it a lot more concrete. You mentioned the tax returns. It, an appeals court decided that, in fact, the president needs to release his tax returns. Is that in regards to the Ukraine business or something previous? No, it re really deals with the uh, issue in New York State where they are, want to examine the issues of the tax returns. They were subpoenaed at one point to for him to produce them, and he was arguing that he doesn't have to produce them as long as he's president. Uh, and the fact is, is that they have now ordered uh, that the tax returns be produced, and that order has been upheld by the appeals court. The only avenue left for further review at this point for President Trump would be the Supreme Court of the United States, and he very well may bring the issue there. The, the underlying this whole issue uh, is the question and the principle, really, of do you generally want the president involved in litigation that really is outside the purview of his office, or wouldn't you rather have him paying attention and spending his time on dealing with matters of importance to the United States? So as a general proposition, the theory has always been that we're all best served by the president devoting 100% of his time to the interests of the United States, even as opposed to his own personal affairs and the like. And that's where some of these uh, the cases and the logic comes from, that at least while the president is acting as the president of the United States, he is free from any type of judicial process that deals with his business affairs or personal affairs or things of that nature. So why was their appeal to not release the taxes denied? Um, because the, the, the court felt that there is no such blanket authority for the president of the United States to not cooperate under any circumstances with investigations with respect to matters that where he his business or personal dealings are involved. The court just did not interpret it as broadly as others have interpreted it in the past, 
that he is free to actually withhold information that is properly subpoenaed and ordered to be produced. And which, by the way, again, if we hearken back to other times, it is part of the uh, argument Nixon at least initially argued about the release of the Watergate tapes is that he shouldn't have to produce this information, call it executive privilege, call it the, you know, the argument that the president shouldn't be involved in such matters as he saw it of trifling importance. The fact is, at the end of the day, the Watergate case, those U.S. versus Nixon and all, told us that no one at the end of the day is above the rule of law. Uh, And now we have this administration pressing that same issue. And, And in part, there's some logic behind their position. If everyone who wanted to sue the President of the United States for whatever reason was able to do so and depose the president and, and, and consume large amounts of his time, the uh, citizens of the United States would be ill-served by, by such a uh, process. And so, so there's, there's some logic on both sides of the equation here. All right. So we're going to have public hearings. What will they look like and what, uh-huh. le- what legally speaking can we expect procedurally? Well, I think you're likely to see, at least in part, what we saw happen today with the release of the testimony by the witnesses in the closed-door hearings, is there would be, uh, uh, like we've seen at times in the Supreme Court confirmation process, you'll see witnesses come in, the witnesses will be uh, sworn in under oath, the witnesses will then be examined for some period of time by one side, with the other side having the opportunity to cross-examine or to ask additional questions of those witnesses. And there'll be both um, testimony taken as well as documentary evidence received. It'll have some of the feel of the trial process where witnesses are brought in to testify, but it won't be uh, with all of the protections that the criminal trial process has with respect to the ability to confront the witnesses on uh, virtually anything that they are discussing or with respect to their credibility. The, the House itself will ultimately determine, and the Senate, when it gets to that stage, will determine what the rules are for the, how those hearings will be conducted. <laughs> what is your sense? The left has better lawyers or the right? Um... You'd like to think that it would be equal. You would like to. I haven't been incredibly impressed by any of the lawyers that I've seen at the hearings that we've seen conducted um, in uh, D.C. If you know, I hearken back to if you remember Colonel North's lawyer when he was being questioned, um, and his first name was Brendan. I don't remember what his last name was. But he was fairly combative, and at times uh, the famous line was that, you know, Mr. Senator or Congressman, I'm not here to be a potted plant. The fact is is that he engaged them. He got his message across. I I haven't really seen that with any uh, great degree of admiration happen during any of this process. I, I get worried, and I think many of us do, that too much of it has seemed to to, to evolve into simply politics and speechifying, and that doesn't make for the great development of a factual record or a trial per se. You know, when we try cases, what we oftentimes say is that uh, in a lot of cases, the lawyer should really blend into the background and it should be the witnesses whose testimony is received and, and make the case, either pro or con for whatever the position is. 
And I think when we see Congress people or their staff or their selected lawyers uh, questioning or introducing evidence and the like, it far too often is more about them than the information and that we're receiving or the story they're trying to tell. Let's move to Giuliani, an, an entire other thing. <laughs> Do you believe that Rudy Giuliani is vulnerable to actual criminal charges? I do. I think that he's injected himself in potential criminal activity, but whether it's between the, his two clients that were recently detained as they uh, were leaving the country with one-way plane tickets out of Washington, um, or whether it's because he's got numerous clients, international clients, um, that have uh, at least been solicited to, for election assistance that may well violate various criminal statutes with respect to foreign governments interfering with U.S. elections. I, I think that there is some potential exposure there for his ultimate indictment. And if I were him, I would take the advice that a lot of lawyers give their clients is that you have the right to remain silent and you should take it. And I think in many cases, He's really his own worst enemy. When you see some of the clips, he goes on TV, he says one thing, the, whoever the interviewer is calls him on it, and then he says, I never said that, and changes his mind. I mean, there's so many times where he has opened his mouth and created potential criminal liability only to reverse himself that uh, it's, it's worrisome to me that for a man as skilled a prosecutor as he was, as great a mayor at one time as he was of New York, why he would uh, be so involved in such fringe activity at this point, tarnishing both his image and exposing him to criminal liability, to me is almost unimaginable. And I, I just can't understand why he would take such risks at this point. If you say something and then reverse yourself does that negate the thing you said no no that no. And, and like for example there was a uh, person being deposed I, I don't know if you call it a deposition but I, having a hearing and he said yeah there was a quid pro quo and then later he walked that back that, that, does, does he does it cancel it out if he says it once no that was a that was the press conference and that was the president's acting chief of staff who said, yeah, that's a quid pro quo, quo, get over it, we do it all the time, this is f the way foreign diplomacy right. is conducted. Then within hours after he went back and talked to the president and decided that that wasn't the tack they chose to take, because it was a bad tact, president had denied it up to that point, said, no, you've misquoted me, I never said that, where clearly he had. No, the fact is, is that you just can't walk back everything you've said. When you make an admission of that, and that's really what it's called, it is an admission because you're admitting um, culpability in certain activity, the fact that you later want to disavow it uh, doesn't simply wash away the, the, the damning part of the admission that, that you acknowledge. What it, what it makes you out to be is incredible at that point, and w what we have then are what we call prior inconsistent statements. We impeach witnesses. That we did it. We were working on that today in evidence. You impeach witnesses all the time with their change stories, their inconsistent statements, because the, the rule is generally then 
is that if you've told two different stories or three different stories at different times, then you're not believable at all with respect to what you said. So the, the jury then is free to pick the most incriminating one if that's what they want, and okay. that's what's likely to take place. All right. Is there any likelihood that, in your opinion, that Rudy Giuliani is involved in any potential crimes other than something related to the president, like things on his own? Uh, I really, that would be conjecture. Beyond what we have seen him do in his involvement with the president and um, these associates of his who, who have at this point been indicted, I, I'm not sure what other activities there are. The problem is, is that a lot of people believe where there's sufficient smoke that there's likely to be fire. And in this situation, the activity just doesn't make sense for, for if, if he's truly not uh, responsible for any type of criminal activity, what would, uh, what would make sense of such reckless behavior and the uh, oftentimes uh, unusual outbursts with respect to his indignation with being questioned about some of that activity? The, the fact is it, it gives one pause as to whether um, there may well be criminal charges in his future. Okay. When this impeachment gets to the Senate for a trial, the judges and the jury are the basically the Republicans in the Senate, and they, they will vote politically. What is the—and we know how that will go. Since we know how that will go, what is the benefit of proceeding with this at all? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, part of it is, don't we, do, wouldn't we like to know what the facts really are and take the rhetoric and the, the, the white-hot politics completely out of it? Now, with that said, is there any way to ever really do that? Even if, you know, we view for ourselves each piece of testimony that's heard and we try to come to our own conclusion— isn't it likely to be colored by the political actors and our own sense of uh, what we believe took place or our uh, our own politics color at the end of the day, some of our thinking on it? So maybe what I'm espousing is more of a uh, an, an interest in the um, uh, process to reveal the truth when at the end of the day, that may be far too simplistic of a view. We're still going to get the version that one side or the other chooses to present to us and preclude, well, preclude us from looking at other things. We do have the public hearing, though, and that, that allows us to, to get as close to the truth as we can get, correct? I think it does, and I think that's why it's important to do that. It seems as though the Democrats did not want to proceed with this really because it tends to be historically counterproductive and they get hurt and it would be politically inexpedient to do it seems as though that they felt that it got to a point where even though it will hurt us politically we have to go forward because it's just the right thing to do otherwise these alleged offenses go unanswered and will continue to go on unanswered in future administrations well, and not just future administrations. I think the strongest argument that I've heard for the reasons why they want to advance it now is the concern that there can be future 
more damaging, even more impeachable acts if they don't go unaddressed. And, and that's probably the strongest, best argument for why it should move forward in that fashion. So they're saying to the president, look, we're serious about this. You have to rein in this wild behavior. Well, I think that's at least part of the expectation or the anticipation here by moving forward. All right. We have uh, we have many individuals, Michael Coyne, Dean Michael Coyne of the Mass School of Law, many individuals simply defying legal subpoenas. First, on what grounds do they do that? Secondly, if they can do that, why can't we do that? Thirdly, down the road, may they be on the hook. Each one of these people who is blithely, is that a word? I mean, I know it's a word. Is it appropriate? Blithely ignoring these, are they going to be on the hook for this? And further, since the president ordered, if the president said, look, I don't want you appearing, is that conspiracy to obstruct justice? It may start, well, where you, start where you want. <laughs> Pick any big problem and deal with it. Uh, yes, it may. And it's, it's, it's actually problematic on a lot of fronts. A subpoena, in essence, is a court order for an individual to appear and provide information, sometimes documents as well. And, and the fact is, uh, not complying with the subpoena carries with it the threat of contempt. And then the court can punish contempt in a variety of ways. And so it's not an invitation to do certain things that you have the ability to reject. The fact is it's a court order that the court can punish with sanctions if you do not. And that's the stage we're presently at with a number of these individuals. Some of them have asked for a subpoena, in essence, to give them cover to, to be able to testify without then being called on the carpet because they voluntarily appeared. So some of them want a, a, a subpoena so that they have a legitimate argument that, well, we were compelled to appear. Bolton is now saying that he will not appear absent a subpoena, uh, but that if he is pr uh, provided a subpoena, he will then comply and testify okay. to Congress. So why didn't they subpoena him? Well, I think they, they are in the process now of doing just that. Other individuals have said, that, who in fact even have been subpoenaed, have said, I don't care whether you've subpoenaed us or not. Uh, the president has asked or ordered or instructed us not to cooperate, not to produce the information because he feels this is a witch hunt and an invalid process, and therefore we will not provide the information even with a subpoena. At that point, then, Congress has the, the authority and the question that if they want to enforce that uh, subpoena, they have to go to court and ask the court to order the individual to comply with the subpoena under the threat of contempt of court or uh, otherwise. And Why haven't they done that yet? I think they that's the process where we're presently at. I think, in part, they were afraid prior to this with uh, the argument that the process wasn't lawfully constituted. There had never been a House vote authorizing them to do that. And that may very well may be why we had the uh, uh, authorization last week from the House to conduct the inquiry, is to set the standard then to be able to move forward with contempt proceedings by saying it is a lawfully conducted process and that if you do not comply with it, you are potentially in contempt of Congress's authority. And, and that is likely why that formal vote was taken last week in the House, is to provide the basis ultimately to be seeking contempt charges against the individuals that don't comply. And, and individuals have been jailed because of the refusal to comply 
uh, with the subpoena. Individuals have been jailed for as long as 18 months because of the refusal to comply with the subpoena. And that's what people need to understand because, to me, to some extent, some of this erodes um, the rule of law. The fact is that the rule of law indicates that we all, Prince of Popper, um, are responsible to comply with lawful orders of the court, and it makes no difference whether you're the President of the United States uh, or someone uh, someone far below that status. And th- it means we're all should be ultimately treated equally and have respect for it. And the fact is is that this this is testing the limits to whether the rule of law is going to be honored and followed and whether it treats all people equally and, and respectfully. And so there is a concern that if the process has been abused politically by some, then then uh, the process can be legitimately tested and and not complied with. Right. But if it if it if these are lawful orders, then at the end of the day, there's a responsibility to comply or risk incarceration uh, uh, if you're ref- a willful refusal to comply with the lawful court orders. So the fact that the president is immune from pr- uh, prosecution while being president has nothing to do with this because. This is not a regular prosecution thing. This is no. a totally other thing. And so you cannot invoke presidential privilege. And they also cannot invoke, I work for the, in even another layer of, of distance, I work for the president, therefore I have immunity. That That is absolutely a non-starter, that defense. As a general matter, it is. But there, there is such a thing as executive privilege that's, that, in fact, was again examined in U.S. versus Nixon, where the fact is this whole idea about executive privilege, presidential privilege, it's not found in the Constitution of the United States. It's that that phrase isn't found anywhere near there at all. But even though it's there, it's not. It's not. It's, it's only about <clears throat> freedom from prosecution from criminal stuff. That that's a different that's a different standard with respect to, in essence, the president's immunity from suit while yeah. he is president right. of the United States. Executive privilege really deals with conversations and communications with the president of the United States that the president has an ability, like your attorney-client privilege, to refuse to disclose or have others who have fallen under the umbrella of that executive privilege to prevent them from disclosing those communications because they fall within this this communication privilege. So the proper way to proceed would, would be to honor the legal subpoena. Yes, show up in court with your lawyer, and then when asked anything about anything that involves the president or that might be uh, might protect you under the under umbrella of executive privilege, you say executive privilege and th- each yes. time. And if But if they ask you something that is not under that umbrella, you'd be compelled to answer. That is exactly the correct way this should proceed. And then, just to finish that, that follow-up then as you look at it, and so then those claims of privilege would be examined separately. Look at the question. Right. Look at what the claim is. See if the information sought would likely fall under the privilege. If it would, then you and the privilege is valid. You're not entitled to obtain it. Right. If not, then the judge could order even that information you claim the privilege on as falling outside the privilege, and you'd be compelled to answer the question. That's the normal way this process would work and, also- and should work. The smart way, because that would take more time, and they're trying to run out the clock just as a strategy. All right, show up and say, you know, each uh, 
privilege, 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 and make them examine each one and just draws everything out Well, longer. but that may be ultimately the next stage in the process. De- stall, hinder, and delay oftentimes is the defendant's friend in a piece of litigation. So the first step is I'm not going to give you anything. Okay. And then ultimately when the court says you got to give them something, I'm going to give you a little, and then we're going to fight over how much of that little you're going to get. And, and the process can be delayed for months and potentially years. However, those, those refusals are already a, a likely a crime. Even well, if they go later, they have, they have committed the crime already. Well, perhaps a legit, you, one has the right and actually the obligation to claim legitimate privilege because in the event you do not protect it, you release the information, then the argument is you have waived the privilege by failing to exercise it timely and protect it. So if one wants to test the limits of that privilege and how expansive it may be, uh, the proper rule is, in fact, to claim the privilege and allow the court to carefully examine that privilege because releasing the information, there's almost no way to put the horse back in the barn okay. once that information well, is I'm not out telling there. them to release the information. I'm saying show up for court as you were subpoenaed to do. And not doing that is the crime, and the crime has been committed, regardless of what you may do down the road. Correct? Well, wait, you said the crime has been committed. You the mean crime would be failure to comply. Con- it's not a crime, but failure to comply failure with the subpoena. Comply. You're in contempt of court. Contempt of court is okay. not a crime. What do you call that? Then? Uh, no, it's not. It's not a crime. You're just in contempt of. You're in contempt. You can get of punished court. for that, though. You can get punished for that. In people, in fact, have been punished okay. for 18 months because of the failure to comply with the subpoena. What do you call it other than crime? Infraction or? legal violation, violation. It just okay. remember there's it doesn't always have to be criminal every violation of the law okay and so this this really would just simply would call it contempt and by the way contempt of court can be civil or criminal so it doesn't necessarily have to be criminal at all that's why i need to go to law school that's why you should go to law school you you know everything already about it yeah we're getting there all right anything else as far as process and as far as this impeachment proceeding goes in the big umbrella sense of the no, word. No, it, it gets to the thing that we have discussed many, many times over is, you know, is the process ultimately going to reveal enough information that it's going to change minds, that it's going to have uh, the beneficial result that we would normally hope that a trial and the process of revealing the information might likely have. And, and that's the question is, if we're looking at numbers and trying to count heads, we know what the House is likely to do at this point. But unless there's almost a sea change in the Senate, the likelihood of convincing, you know, the half a dozen senators that likely hold the president's fate in his hand, um, because the House, the, the Senate, the House is controlled by Democrats, but the Senate is controlled by Republicans at this point by only a handful of people. But that's really all it takes. The fact is we're looking at about a half a dozen senators um, that ultimately will be the decision makers as to whether the president is impeached. That includes uh, Senator Romney, who used to be our governor. It also includes Senator Collins from Maine. Um, And those are two of the decision makers there. But just like we saw with respect to the Kavanaugh hearings, um, there are a handful of others, including uh, Murkowski from uh, Alaska, McSally from Arizona um, and um, Sass from Nebraska, who all ultimately will play kingmakers here. 
many of those folks are up for re-election as well. And so they face some very difficult choices between resolving the case that uh, may well be against their party's interest, means that they may lose donors and capital for that election campaign, but it also means that they're exposing themselves to challenges from their own party with respect to those uh, votes that they may ultimately have to make in the Senate. So it's from a political standpoint, it's an interesting process that will take place in those senators that uh, people feel have the most to lose and likely need um, to vote uh, for impeachment in order for impeachment to succeed. If it falls straight along party lines, um, then the likelihood is the House will vote for impeachment and the Senate will vote against, um, which will be really uh, no different than uh, President Clinton's impeachment process as well, and he ultimately served the remainder of his term. All right, folks, question for you. Would you plead guilty and do four to six months, or would you roll the dice, plead not guilty, maybe serve 24 to 36 months? What am I talking about? Find out right after this on WBZ. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the case of the college admission scandal, which is ongoing. And recently, the government... The government government up the ante and brought additional bribery charges to some of these defendants. Why don't you tell us where we sit as far as this whole thing goes? We have some sentences handed down. They're insanely light uh, and embarrass- embarrassingly light. Is that a surprise? Go for it. Okay. It's the college admission scandal uh, case we're talking about. And the two most uh, famous defendants from that case are Laurie Laughlin and Felicity Huffman. Uh, As most people know, Felicity Huffman pled guilty early, very remorseful statement, uh, and ultimately received a very generous sentencing um, term of uh, 14 days in jail, uh, followed by uh, public service, followed by a fine. Uh, It's a felony that could have uh, sent her to jail for a year, but even under the sentencing guidelines, um, that could have been many months, and the prosecution wanted at least uh, uh, some months served. Ultimately, the judge felt that because she uh, pled early, that was remorseful and genuinely uh, uh, regretted her activities, that she would receive only a sentence of 14 days and ultimately only served 11 days. So all to, in, in a federal penitent—not penitent, federal uh, prison— out in California, relatively, obviously, low-level security. So she would be in, in uh, by herself. She wouldn't have a roommate, right? No, uh, she may have had a roommate. She would have had, She would have been allowed to walk the grounds. There's photos of her in her prison jumpsuit walking around, interacting with others. She may have had a, a cell by herself. I don't know what her living arrangements were, but, but there was some level of of security, obviously, in both the premises and for her, because it would look really bad if uh, something— She got killed. 
Sure, but but we also know that uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Whitey Bulger were killed while in federal prison, so one should question the security that the government provides under certain circumstances to people they know uh, are high risks there. And and someone like that, someone with such a a star background, would potentially be a target. But but at any so so there is some concern about serving any time, but but most people uh, see that eleven day prison term for a felony, even if it's a first offense, even if the person has pled guilty, even if they're remorseful, as a very light sentence. I have many friends that believe that in part it reflects the status that she is both white and wealthy, uh, and the court has viewed those crimes as very differently uh, than if she was a uh, black woman from Chicago who had falsified her address trying to get her daughter to be able to go to a better school. Which is an actual case. Which is an actual case in which she was ultimately sentenced uh, to more than a year in jail as a result of it. The, the fact is, is that, unfortunately, we'd be naive to believe that race and status doesn't play some role as the court sees it as to the severity of these offenses when sentencing individuals. And that, that may be the harsh reality of the situation, but we'd all be naive to think that these things aren't playing some role in how the court views both the uh, criminal offense as well as the need for incarceration. If I didn't preface this next question, you might laugh, but I don't. I hope you don't, and I mean this seriously. Uh, you say race plays a, is a factor, and wealth and fame. What about attractiveness? Is, an, is a person perceived as ugly? by Western standards, going to get a worse deal over the course of many, you know, many cases than a really attractive person. That mu- You must think about that. I, n- I never have really given it that much thought. I know there's, there's, there is a general thought by, uh, of that, that our, well, first of all, our looks play a role in how the court views the case. You know, we, we talk to our new potential lawyers as we talk to them and we teach them trial skills and we teach them evidence about the respect for the court and how that is displayed by wearing a sport coat, coat dressing appropriately, having family in the courtroom to at least be viewed as this person having a connection to their community and having someone that cares about them being positively received by the the court in both determining guilt or innocence and in sentencing. So it, absolutely, those types of factors play a role. Can't, would the, the court look even at more superficial factors as simply same set of circumstances, same family connections and everything else, but one person is, uh, is extraordinarily good looking and the other person um, has the, the worry of the world on their face and shows the hard life that they may have experienced. I don't know. I've never really thought to the extent that good looks versus bad looks would play a role in sentencing. I do think there's a lot, and and conviction and punishment. I do think, unfortunately, whether it's um, uh, uh, acknowledged or even realized I think class and race okay. play to a greater extent play roles, and and I don't think it's necess- necessarily because it's a conscious application. I think sometimes uh, it's harder to see someone who doesn't 
look like us or act like us in the same sympathetic role sometimes. Only a minute before the break here. How about when it comes to attorneys? Do it, are there statistics that show whether or not attractive attorneys fare better than unattractive attorneys? And, I mean, that may seem a little strange, but you could couch it this way. What about some... 70s lawyer with a ponytail, you know, uh-huh. uh, and a fringe jacket and uh, unshaven guy. That, is that guy going to suffer? Is he going to have to be a real genius to overcome that? It's another great question that um, I've never given it a lot of thought. But in the same vein, there are issues associated with that I have. For, for one thing is we talk about it again in trial skills. The jury has to like the defendant. They have to like you. And those be- and, and those become factors as to whether you're likely to succeed. You're the best, Michael Coyne, Dean of the Massachusetts School of Law. Thank you so much. Can't wait till you can come back. It's WBZ. Pay as low as $99 a month, only at longroofing.com. Okay, forest animals, kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.